Ever wonder what history's most famous and infamous people would say if you asked them for their side of the story? Well, this is it. You're listening to Hindsight, an original podcast by Al Jazeera. I'm Charles Dance. This is a dramatized series based on historical events that resurrect some of the world's most memorable figures. In this episode, we hear from Idi Amin, the butcher of Uganda. On the day he was born, a hailstorm was seen as a good omen. In hindsight, it's hard to imagine the horrors that would come, at least where his countrymen were concerned. Hindsight. You've heard of them, but now it's time you hear from them. It is 2003 in Jeddah, a port city on the Red Sea in Saudi Arabia. On a hospital bed lies a tall, bulky man suffering from kidney failure. His Muslim skullcap and white tunic hang in the corner of the room. There is no God but Allah. A nurse quietly checks the patient while he recites verses from the Quran. His last days spent in a hushed room are a far cry from the life he lived and the terror he instilled in the nation. Unlike most Ugandans, Idi Amin Dada escaped the ruin he created during his tyrannical rule by seeking political asylum abroad. He got it in Saudi Arabia. For more than two decades until his death, Amin settled into a life of luxury, along with the thirty-odd family members he'd brought with him. Regular swims in the sea, or at a luxury hotel, full-course lunches, massages, expensive cars, and regular shopping trips. The Saudis maintained his opulent lifestyle with a monthly allowance. In return, all he had to do was keep quiet. Now, I dedicate my time to God and all his teachings. Only God can judge me in my life. I'm not as strong as I used to be. But, ah, uh, you should have seen me. An unbeatable force in and out of the boxing ring. It's all about the knockout. This is the most important. Knock him out and you'll win. Amin spent his years as head of Uganda making sure he was the last man standing, even if it meant bringing Ugandans to their knees. He captivated the nation while plundering it for all it was worth. His military rule led Uganda to the brink of financial ruin. Amin, never short of enthusiasm, encouraged his soldiers to commit acts of violence and to do whatever they wanted so long as it kept him in power. He ruled by fear and fanned the rumors about his barbarity, whether they were of him feeding his opponents to crocodiles or gorging on his victims' flesh. Erratic, brutal, an evil buffoon and a murderous cannibal. These are just a few of the expressions world leaders would use to describe Idi Amin. Well, I go by many titles. I would have liked to add the King of Scotland, but 
I was born in northern Uganda sometime around 1925. Keeping track of birth dates didn't matter much in those days. But how I came into this world, now that is the story. My mother would recount how she had given birth to me all alone in a terrific storm, the hail whipping her face. You know, it's a good omen to be born during a hailstorm. My mother knew I was exceptional from the start. Or as his predecessor once put it, the greatest brute that an African mother has ever brought to life. I mean, mother Asha was a traditional healer from both the Kakwa and Lugbara tribes. His father, Andreas Nayabira, I mean, was from the Kakwa warrior tribe. Amin's mother was his father's second wife, and his birth should have been, by all accounts, a time of celebration, if it wasn't for the relentless gossip about who his real father was. My father tried to ignore the rumors, but they were persistent. His first wife, Miriam Poya, was jealous of my mother for bearing children when she couldn't. The leader of the tribe even got involved and pressured my father to accuse my mother of sleeping with another man. As it turned out, my father's biggest mistake was to question her loyalty. Whose baby is it? Don't you it like your me? baby? How can you seek that my son? And to put the rumor to rest, that is not mine Don't will die. I was put to the test. My father carried me deep into the forests of Mount Liro, the ancestral land of my people in Koboko district. He found a spot in the middle of the wilderness and left me there, a newborn, alone for days. Well, I'm here to tell the story so you know that I survived. But you may not know what happened during those long days. The legendary snake Nakan with seven heads came to me. She wrapped herself around me as if she was coiling around her own eggs to keep me warm. That's how the elders found me when they came to the forest to see if I was still alive. And so the folk story goes. Amin was quite the self-proclaimed legend from birth. Despite passing the paternity test, the seed of doubt had been sown, and the tribe no longer trusted his mother, Asha. People would stare at my mother, talk behind her back, it was unbearable. According to his family, from that day forward, any hope of reconciliation between his parents was lost. Amin grew up without a father. Now, for a young boy and a single mother, well, things certainly didn't come easy for us. I took whatever work I could get my hands on. I herded goats. Come here, you beast. Not that way. Cooked, carried water. It's already getting dark. Ugh. Anything so that we could earn a little bit of money. Amin's upbringing wasn't unusual for many children in Uganda at the time, although he would make everyone believe it was. What's more, as a Muslim and northerner, he and other children had to quit school and work from a young age to help make ends meet. Each night, when the sun had fallen beneath the horizon, 
I would pray for Dawn to take her time rising the next day. I will not do this forever, no. I hate this. I will get out. I will become great. I will get out. I will become great. Poverty cut away at my childhood, but through sheer strength, I cut myself loose from its grip. That same brawn would come to dominate everything he did in life. And then, when Amin was barely a teenager, he embarked on a path that would lead him directly to the controversial leader he would become. I got a job as a cook on the SS Yoma, this huge military ship with something like 1,000 sailors on board. I had never seen anything like it. It was so exciting. I knew instantly that this was where I belonged. Okay, I might have still been chopping vegetables, but this was my first posting in the King's African Rifles. We went to Burma, I remember. I served in the Second World War. This was where my great military career took off. I even survived an attack from the Jamins who sunk our ship. Well, that's a stretch. British Army records show his service only started in 1946, two years after the Yoma sunk. After that, I needed a job, so I went to work as a bellboy in a hotel in Kampala, just briefly, because before long, the army officers begged me to join the military. The officers had to look up to me. No, really, <laughs> I was six foot four, you see? I saw the glint in their eyes. They knew what an asset I could be. Who would not have wanted someone like me on their side? <laughs> so everything they asked, I did. I never questioned them. I was more than willing to comply. And I did it better than they could have ever imagined. If there was a problem, I was there. Somebody stepped out of line, I was right there to knock some sense into them. <laughs> The British officers didn't ask too much about how I got things done, and I didn't tell them. <laughs> that was part of the fun. <laughs> British rule over Uganda and Kenya at the time may have allowed Amin to act with impunity. But what made this young soldier choose to go to the extremes of cruelty? And how far was he willing to go? One of the Empire's bloodiest chapters in history gives some insight to this. In 1952, I was sent to sort out the Mau Mau fighters in Kenya. They were rising up against the British. They wanted the white settlers out. I was ordered to fight with the British and do whatever it would take to crush the rebels. You know what to do. Not one person can get away. Go, go, round the side of the hut. What do we have here? You little runt! You thought you could escape me? You thought you could take me on? Give up your weapons, or I'll chop off your manhood. 
War is war, and I was just doing my job. And yet Amin seemed to have a certain zeal for killing. In the end, the Mau Mau uprising lasted for eight years until 1960. More than 11,000 people are believed to have been killed in the fighting. Amin received praise for his strong-arm tactics. After his tour in Kenya, he was promoted to corporal. Another win. Amin was known to be a strong swimmer and fast sprinter, but boxing was his real passion. He believed himself to be so invincible that he even challenged Muhammad Ali to a match. It never happened, of course, but anyone who did step into the ring with him, well, let's just say it was safer to lose quickly. I was so good. I became the Ugandan light heavyweight champion. Once I fought in front of the Kabaka. Oh, he was impressed. Kabaka Edward Muteza, or King Freddy as the foreign press labelled him, would go on to become the first president of Uganda. If he was impressed with young Amin then, he'll have a decidedly different opinion of him in the not-so-distant future. In 1959, Amin was made a Fendi, or a warrant officer. It was the highest rank possible for a black African soldier in the colonial British army. And with his increased powers, Amin grew bolder, more confident, and dangerous. One day, I was given orders to check if the Turkana herders from Kenya were stealing cattle. I knew those people. There was no point in just talking to them. That is not how you get things done. Catch each and every one of them. You had me. You dig. Dig deep. We got the job done in record time. We didn't even make a mess. It was a military triumph. While he apparently commanded his troops from a tent, this military achievement concealed a brutal truth. Bodies exhumed from their graves revealed tribesmen had been mutilated, tortured. But British authorities and Uganda's Prime Minister, Milton Obote, decided not to prosecute Amin. Independence from Britain was around the corner, you see and Obote needed trusted officers in his army. In that moment, an opportunity to stop the future strongman of Uganda was lost. Amin was instead promoted to officer. With his military career going strong, so was his personal life. In 1961, he married Sarah Mutezi Chibedi, his first of many wives. I love women. Mama Miriam, that's what we called her. We got married after the birth of our daughter. I loved the way she walked. We had six children together. My fortune was always good when it came to family. I had many, many children, and I found beautiful wives to share my time with. There was also Kay, Nora, Medina. I mean, married at least six women. We lived on the outskirts of Kampala. Oh, and my mistresses. Yes, uh, of course, they were around too. <laughs> we had a beautiful time. But it wasn't marital bliss for everyone. As a practicing Muslim, Amin could take on more than one wife. But for most of the women, life with and after Amin was unpredictable. Divorce inevitable. 
For one, a suspicious car accident. Another, a mysterious murder. In the new Africa, one more independent country, the state of Uganda. Finally, the time had come in October 1962. A new beginning. Uganda was free and independent from Great Britain. And I was ready. King Mutesa became the first president of Uganda. I had boxed in the ring at his house. Now it was time to really put on my gloves for a new fight. <laughs> Prime Minister Milton Obote kept me close and promoted me to captain right away. But I was so indispensable, I soon rose the ranks to major. Whatever Abote wanted to do, I did it to the best of my ability. But you know, I couldn't believe he refused to hold elections, and he threw anyone who was against him into prison. It was a tactic Amin would bear in mind. Abote had support from Acholi and Lango peoples in the north, but the kingdom of Uganda in the south, under Kabaka Mutesa, well, they were a powerful opposition. So Abote called in the one man he knew who could help get him political supremacy. The plan was simple, seek and destroy. We approached Kabaka's palace in Mango early one morning. On my orders, men! They knew we were coming. Still, his guards were no match for my soldiers. Attack! We fought for several hours until Kabaka's troops finally retreated. Kabaka escaped over a palace wall. And you know, I let him. I always had a soft spot for him, ever since I boxed at his palace. So in the very thick of the fighting, I threw a smoke screen so he could slip away. That's questionable. Another account has it that after the explosion, Amin appeared in his jeep, loaded with some of the king's belongings, including his trophies. So whether he knew if Mutesa had died or escaped is up for debate. Though it is true Kabaka Mutesa II escaped to Great Britain unharmed. And so, in 1966, Milton Nabote became president. But it will be a tumultuous five years with his go-to man by his side. My soldiers did not have enough to eat, and Abote did nothing to change that. So expensive. So expensive. We can't live like this. Ugandans were also hungry, unemployed, paying a lot of taxes. People wanted their basic rights, the independence and freedom they hoped for with the British gone. Abote sucked in all the power for himself, but he needed the military. And he needed the police to do his dirty work, to terrorize the people. Abote had established the General Service Unit, largely staffed by ethnic groups loyal to him. Their job was to take care of threats to the regime. And Amin, well, in 1967, he created and led another new security unit, the military police. The armed forces were divided over who they supported. The Lango and Acholi tribes were loyal to Obote, while those from the West Nile region were faithful to Amin. 
But when President Abote heard rumors that the British wanted Amin in power, he sent him to Egypt to attend the funeral of President Gamal Abdel Nasser. While Amin was away, Abote demoted him to chief of defense staff, cutting him off from direct command over troops. I did everything he wanted, and now he was trying to get rid of me? To push me aside like a dog? It was time for me to enter the political ring. And enter he did. Amin caught wind that Abote had ordered his arrest while the Prime Minister was in Singapore for a Commonwealth conference. So at daybreak, on the 25th of January 1971, Amin sprung into action and seized power. I thought it was a good opportunity for Abote to learn a lesson here, to be demoted while away on business. You see, Amin is a reasonable man, and I always speak the truth. The truth is what the masses, my people, wanted, and that was to have Abote gone and for me to take over. The Excellency Major General Idi Amin Dada. Now I'm faced with the enormous task of getting the country back on its feet. I am here for all Ugandans. Ugandans woke up to the news that Abote's rule was over. Abote only found out himself when he was on his way back to Uganda. And when he did, his flight made a sharp turn towards Kenya instead. Oh, the celebrations. Everyone was dancing in the streets when Idi Amin became president of Uganda. The army and air force printed their love for me in the newspapers, describing how confident they were that I would clean up public life. Now was my chance to educate Ugandans to love and respect one another in the spirit of brotherhood, unity, and equality. Amin was a gifted performer in front of an audience. He told the nation what they wanted to hear. He promised to hold democratic elections after 18 months. He would release political prisoners, and he would disband the secret police. It all sounded good, too good. But Amin was not a man of his word. I was exactly where God wanted me to be. Idi Amin Dada, man of God. And it was time to get down to business. My dear friend Moshe Dayan invited me to Israel for my first state visit. They agreed to help my people, and I promised a Ugandan embassy in Jerusalem in exchange. After all, what are friends for? The embassy never happened. Then I was off to the United Kingdom. Queen Elizabeth II herself welcomed me to her palace, and after that I went to Scotland. I was being treated as the hero that I was. Israel and the British needed Uganda. We were very good military customers and gave them plenty of work developing projects. Yes, Uganda was good for them. But Western powers were growing suspicious. I mean, may have been a military man, but he was not known for his intelligence. Or as one British official put it years earlier, Amin is virtually bone from the neck up and needs things explained in words of one letter. 
One word describes what came next. Purge. Acholi and Lango need to be cut out. We need a clean army, a fresh start. Get rid of them, now. I don't want a single Obote loyalist in my army. All leaders expect to be surrounded by people they can trust. This is most reasonable, and I am a reasonable man. But there was no reason for what happened next. Upwards of 6,000 people from various ethnic groups were killed or disappeared, according to observers. The bodies of countless victims were reportedly dumped into the River Nile. Rumours of Amin being a cannibal and of heads being tossed at the crocodiles echoed throughout his rule. I had the best men. And they were very effective. They were the secret police. And Amin gave them the power to arrest or kill anyone they believed to be guilty of sedition. And they didn't need much evidence. People had lost their way. They had to be disciplined and spend a bit of time in jail. They were torture chambers right in the middle of Kampala. It's been reported that Amin himself got personally involved, beating or electrocuting his victims until they passed out from the pain. You thought you could get away with it? You do not know your country so well. No need to explain anything now. <laughs> you have to get your enemies before they get you. The only chance to defeat the referee who is against you or against the country is to win by knockout. Politics is like boxing. You must try to knock out your opponent. At the top, you always center your eyes on the people that need to be cut out. No, no breakfast. I must go. I had a dream of Asians milking cows. They kept milking and milking them, but did not feed the cow for it to yield more milk. It was a message from God. The Ugandan people were suffering, and it was up to me to make things right. I had to ensure that only Ugandans would enjoy the fruits of the country. Since independent, actually, Uganda is not... These Asians with British passports were sabotaging the economy and did not have the welfare of Uganda at heart. Well, every dictator needs a good scapegoat. They had been leeching from the country for far too long. I gave them 90 days to leave, more than 50,000 of them. And they had to sell everything to us before they left. Now Ugandan shops would have Africans behind the counter. 
finally the legacy of the British imperialists was over. It was an economic opportunity for Uganda. But Amin killed any opportunity for Ugandans. By putting those businesses in the hands of people who had little experience, the economy collapsed. It never recovered. Amin also expelled or imprisoned Uganda's small Israeli community. He turned to Libya's Muammar Gaddafi for fighter jets, which Gaddafi agreed to only if Amin agreed to cut ties with the Israelis. Amin changed alliances, even praising Hitler and his final solution. Amin's political allegiances were as erratic as his personal commitments. In 1974, Amin met his fifth wife, Sarah. How they came to marry was typical of Amin. What a beautiful specimen of a woman. She was a go-go dancer. I could not take my eyes off her. Come and sit here. She was going to make the perfect wife. It did not matter that she was already with another man. No, it wouldn't. One day, that man vanished, and incidentally, 19-year-old Sarah was free to marry. Yasser Arafat, the future Palestinian leader, was my best man. It was so exciting, I threw two receptions, no expense spared. There was no one else but my beautiful Sarah. We'll give him that. Amin unceremoniously announced his divorce from three of his wives over the radio. Sarah was indeed my favorite. We had four children together. <laughs> I had many children. I loved to crawl on the floor with the little ones and roughhouse with the older ones. They called me Big Daddy. I was woken up at 4 o'clock in the morning. I was told that the plane had only 15 minutes of fuel left. What was I supposed to do? Leave them all to crash in Bonn? It was June 1976, and Air France Flight 139 bound for Paris had been diverted by four hijackers. The plane was carrying mainly Israeli passengers, and Amin allowed it to land at Uganda's Entebbe airport. Of course I did not know they were going to come. The people in charge of the plane were Palestinians. I knew I must do something to make things better. The Palestinians were my friends, so I knew I could help everybody. But Amin got in the way of negotiations. He suggested to the hijackers that they should free the non-Israelis. I went to our guests many times. I made sure they had food and even persuaded the hijackers to extend their deadline. They demanded Israel release 53 Palestinian prisoners. But the Israelis couldn't wait. A few hours before the deadline, an Israeli commando squad stormed my airport. How dare they? I had been helping. 
our airport terminal was blown up, our planes destroyed, and our own blood spilled on the runway. African soil should never be used against its own brothers. A remarkable statement given his history. In the end, three hostages, seven hijackers, and 20 Ugandan soldiers were killed. One Israeli soldier also died, Jonathan Netanyahu. His brother would go on to become Israel's prime minister. The elite squad rescued 105 hostages and flew them home. By this time, the international community had at best a scathing opinion of Amin. Ugandans didn't think much of him either. And in 1977, one of them spoke up. My advisors informed me that Archbishop Janani Jakalia Luwum was up to something. And then he had the audacity to send me a letter. With the Archbishop and the bishops of the provinces of Uganda, we arrested the Archbishop for treason. You have kindly given us this opportunity to express our grievances and concerns to you. But he died in a car accident on the way to be questioned. So tragic. The real story is quite different. Amin was infuriated by the letter. At a rally, a document was read out accusing Lawum and another bishop of smuggling weapons. Soldiers chanted for the conspirators to be killed. I told the press and said they would have a proper military trial before deciding if they should be disciplined. But the archbishop was arrested and taken to the secret police's headquarters for questioning. And he would have to face Amin himself. Strip him and leave me to it. You had your freedom of speech, but freedom after speech. <laughs> Hands are for praying to God, not writing letters, old man. What made you think you could speak to me like that? Now is not the time to play dumb. Answer me! Your God is not here. I am the most powerful. Those are the last words you ever need to hear. The Archbishop became one of the many unarmed critics to die in the torture chambers of Kampala. Amin's bloody reign is in its sixth year. His final two would be remembered for being erratic, as Amin lost his grip on reality. I soon sensed a plot forming from across the border in Tanzania. What do you do in the ring when your opponent is coming in for a punch? You counterpunch. I sent my troops across the border to invade Tanzania. The more likely story was that Amin was creating a smokescreen to divert attention from a rebellion within his military. Divert, deflect, destroy. He grossly underestimated it all. Tanzania's President Julius Nereri, backed by exiled Ugandan rebels, counterattacked. By the spring of 1979, 
Tanzanian forces took over the capital, turning Kampala into a ghost town. After eight years in power as one of Africa's most brutal dictators, Idi Amin's reign was over on the 11th of April 1979. He would never return to Uganda or answer for his alleged crimes against humanity. In 2003, he died from multiple organ failure. It's impossible to know how many died during Amin's brutal reign. Human rights organizations believe 10,000 people were killed in his first year as president. And by the time he was deposed, that number rested between 100,000 and 500,000. Today, he is remembered as nothing more than a malicious dictator who terrorized the Ugandan people. Hindsight is narrated by me, Charles Dance. This series was produced by Sout Podcasts. Their team is producer and editor Tala Alisa. This episode is written by Louise Sinatum. Sound design by Tasia Kabani. Sound editing by Mahmoud Abunada. Associate producer, Asant Samut. Director, Zain Ganma. Research by Ramar Sabanek. Fact-checking by Bayan Alaruri. Idi Amin is played by Sankita Frederick David. Young Idi Amin is played by Jeremiah Mukesa. Extra male voices are played by Kalanzi Kazito. Extra female voices are played by Nensima Flona. Recording by Quad A Studios, TVC Soho Studios. Additional research and fact-checking by Al Jazeera. Script editing by Danello Havaleshka. The senior copy editor is Hala Sudani. Joe DeFrias is the executive producer of Special Projects. Juan Carlos Van Meek is Al Jazeera's director of digital innovation and programming. Hindsight is a historical drama podcast. All dramatized scenes and dialogue are inspired by historical events and old interviews with people close to the subject. <laughs>